expand your mind and enrich your world. It's time for another outstanding podcast from ICRT. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week, a roundup of the top news stories from around the island over the past seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Jane Rickards of The Economist. Jane? Good evening, Keith. And uh, joining us by phone is Che Ting Ye of Katagalan Media. Ting, it's uh, great to have you on the show. Thanks. It's uh, my pleasure. Today on the show, we're discussing an upcoming sister city forum between Shanghai and Taipei, which so far has been rather unfamiliar, a failed push to increase the island's minimum wage, and a group taking a hard look at a painful legacy of World War II. But first, it seems we're leading with a story today on monetary policy. I can't (laughs) believe it, but we're doing it. There's no escaping it. It's uh, been uh, headlines around the world. China shocked the world this Tuesday when its central bank decided to devalue the yuan by nearly 2% in just one session. Well, Taiwan's currency, along with a lot of other currencies in the region, has followed the yuan's nosedive, following 1% Tuesday to a five-year low. It fell again later in the week, but then regained a little bit of ground yesterday. Uh, But rather than have me yammer on about this, let's get somebody who actually uh, knows what they're talking about. Jane, uh, help us understand first and foremost, uh, what is China doing here and what's behind its decision? Okay, well, the most popular explanation is that China wants to stimulate its sluggish economy by making its currency cheaper, which in turn will make exports cheaper. But the scale of the UN's weakening um, belies such a motive because actually, comparatively speaking, it's not really enough to justify that. Um, because um, in, term, in market terms, the UN's been appreciating to the extent that even after the devaluation, is still more than 10% stronger against currencies of China's major trading partners. Mm-hmm. So it's still stronger than its trading partners than it was a year ago. So it wouldn't really do that much to boost trade? Um, it, will, it definitely will boost trade, but um, I think the fact that it's still stronger than its other cu- the other currencies of its major trading partners suggests that the more likely reason is because the International Monetary Fund is going to decide whether to include the UN in the select group of currencies it uses to calculate the so-called special drawing rights. So that's tantamount to declaring the UN a global reserve currency. Now, the IMF had sort of hinted last week that the yuan is too heavily controlled and... Um, the IMF sort of hinted that China needed to make the UN more open to market forces. So I think that's probably China's main motive. All right. So th- th- this is kind of interesting because th- what they're saying is this is a more liberalized rate. This more reflects yes. the market, but yes. it's uh, actually lower. Uh, and that's kind of the opposite of what we've been hearing from America all these years. Yeah, that's one of the most interesting things about this is that um, the usual criticism of China was it manipulates its currency to be at a much lower level than it really should be, you know, to boost its economy, unfairly boost its economy. But in the last few years, it's actually been the reverse, Mm. that um, the yuan is actually really valued much lower than what China's central bank sets it at. So um, that's sort of an interesting twist. And um, you can see the American reaction that the Obama administration's criticisms were quite soft because Mm. they were wanting China to take sort of these sort of 
more free market reforms, but I think congressmen have been sort of criticising China again for hurting US business by making their exports cheaper. Well, it's their jobs, I suppose. <laughs> uh, so let's come back to Taiwan. Uh, obviously, this week, we, as I mentioned, we saw the uh, Taiwan dollar take a bit of a nosedive too. Mm. Uh, what What is the relationship between these two things? I think the Taiwan dollar would probably be in tandem with the yuan because um, if China makes its exports cheaper, well, Taiwan will have to keep up because chi- Taiwan competes with China on you know, a number of products, say LCD flat panels. So I think Taiwan's new Taiwan dollar will probably move in tandem with yuan. So a little bit of pressure on the central bankers. Yes. And uh, so if this is going to be a long-term thing, I, that means that probably for a while now, uh, the U.S. dollar is going to be stronger compared to the Taiwan dollar. Uh, what, what is that going to mean for Taiwan? Is this going to have any significant impact here? Um, I think it will help exports, but um, I don't think it's going to be a, a really significant impact. I think it will help exports somewhat. Well, I guess uh, the main impact for me is uh, all my money is in NT dollars, so I mm. just lost a lot of U.S. dollars, I think is what yeah, this means for me. probably is. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, we're going to run away from the monetary issues. Uh, hope that we kept you with us while we were there. The next one's got a touch of the local and a touch of the international. The Taipei-Shanghai City Forum is set to take place next week in Shanghai. Uh, Since it began in 2010, the annual forum between Taiwan and China's two largest cities has been a chance to share information, uh, move forward cross-strait agreements, and just generally get to know each other a little bit better. But this time around, the run-up to the event were fraught with controversy, political disputes on cross-strait issues threw the whole event into question, and we didn't even have a solid confirmation that it was going to take place until just about a week ago. But it is on, and Mayor Koenja is going. So, uh, Jane, uh, before we get into that controversy, uh, did I did I explain the event kind of okay? Is that sort of what it's about? Uh, what's your understanding of the main significance of this thing? Well, I think the main significance of the event is really political. Um, it shows... It's, a, it's I think it's a sign of China's attitude to non-KMT parties and to politicians who don't embrace the so-called 1992 consensus. But if you're talking about the actual substance of the forum from August 17th to 19th, um, they're going to dis- they're, I think the main focus is youth startups and city developments, and they're just exchanging ideas with a view to cooperation in future. But they're also going to touch on intelligent cities, healthcare issues like that. Okay, so uh, lots of, you know, municipal things that wonky municipal mm. people probably care a lot about, but mm. um, let's focus then on the uh, the controversy running up to this thing. Uh, so, it kind of focused on uh, Mayor Cohen's attitudes towards the 1992 consensus, right? Yes, because um, China, from Xi Jinping downwards, has made it clear that if exchanges, formal exchanges with China are to go ahead, Taiwan must embrace the 1992 consensus. And Kerr was sort of reluctant to do that. And why people were so interested in this was not so much, as I said, not so much the content of the forum itself, but whether there could be some sort of new relationship between China and non-KMT politicians who just aren't 100% on board with the 1992 consensus. Because basically China was insisting for the KMT politicians that that be the basis of the whole thing. Well, China's insisting that for everyone, especially the DPP. But what was interesting was in the end, according to Xinhua, Ke said he respected the 1992 consensus, and that does not mean that he accepted it. And the interesting thing is that's good enough for China. Mm. And um, so I wondered whether, in fact, 
this forum was actually the canary in, the so-called canary in the cage and whether this is a sign of whether the DPP and China could find some way to talk to each other. And I spoke to an analyst about this and he said, well, no, it's not quite the same because the DPP's got an independence charter behind it and Kerr doesn't and then Kerr's an individual politician so he could be more flexible. But I think it's certainly a sign that um, perhaps there is some way around China's bottom line of a 1992 consensus. But I don't see the DPP actually take, going as far as Kerr. Mm. Ting, what did you take away from this whole episode? Um, I... Actually, I mean, I do agree that uh, the I mean, sort of a cynical view with these uh, sort of official visits, um, the the pretext is almost always more important to me than the actual substance. And I um, am slightly less optimistic. Um, I do my my take is that it, during the KMT era, you know, the past eight years when uh, Ma Ying-jeou was president, there's um, a lot of these uh, forums or these exchanges set up between KMT and the and you know Chinese officials, and basically it was very easy at the time when to set up these things because both sides agreed to the 1992 consensus. And now um, we're starting to see um, you know the election last year and then the upcoming national elections. When um, if the KMT is no longer in power, what will the new uh, politicians do? Will they keep? going to these uh, exchanges where they keep attending these events. Um, obviously, I think there is quite a lot of voters who want them to. And I do believe that this is some sort of a, a kind of leverage that China um, hold on whoever takes power in Taiwan. Right. I, so, so as you say, you know, there's this whole uh, formal and informal system uh, of uh, kind of meetings and, and, and various other events that has been developed over the past couple of years to uh, have these kind of uh, cross-strait contacts. Uh, and so that's an interesting question. Does more uh, of new political brands coming into Taiwan, does it throw that system into question? Yeah, well, that, yeah, Ting, I agree with you. But I think one thing which is positive, which we can take away from this, is that this meeting, was this instituted meeting, I think they've had the forums, they've been holding the forum since 2010, was actually able to happen despite the fact that Kerr wasn't 100% um, on the KMT's line on China that Kerr was never said he accepted the 1992 consensus. So you can look at it from a positive perspective that the forum wasn't actually called off, that it still went ahead. So you could say to some extent, I think that's a sign that even if new political parties are in power, it's still possible to go ahead with these sort of institutionalised exchanges. Another interesting point that uh, we've been has been talked about a little bit in the media recently is that it looks like the authorities in Beijing have wanted to limit uh, the size of Koenja's delegation, um, and there has been some speculation that it uh, the reasoning behind that is that they just didn't want too many DPP members in the delegation going over. So. Yeah, I read it that um, China was um, make in China's eyes, it's giving Kerr a concession by letting him come, but they're not going to let him have the whole hog. You know, they're mm. still going to say, "Well, we're going to limit you, and we're not going to let you take as many people's halonbing." That was how I read it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, supposedly um, the uh, DPP uh, city councillors in the Taipei City Council are more, you know, so are more enthusiastic and more eager to go with Koenzo than the. KMT counselors, which I think is a very interesting point. All right. Well, uh, it's coming up next Monday, so uh, we're going to have to keep an eye on it. And uh, all these future events uh, as, as some sign of uh, you know, where these cross-strait forums are going. But for now, we're going to have to take a break. We'll be back in just a minute with more news from Taiwan this week.
All right, and we're back to Taiwan this week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Jane Rickards and Che Tingye, jumping right back into things. For those of you who were worried we didn't have enough economic news today, fear not! <laughs> Disputes over the minimum wage picked up this week. Uh, the Ministry of Labor's minimum wage review met Wednesday to discuss a 1.5% increase to the minimum wage, and they decided, no, not right now. Based on the reporting I've heard, it sounds like uncertainty about economic growth and uh, pressure from business leaders carried the day. So we're walking out of these talks with no wage increase for now, but actually uh, a number of labor groups were looking for uh, a pretty large increase, larger than the 1.5. Let's put some figures to this. Uh, The minimum wage was raised quite recently. Uh, Back in July, it was set to 20,008 NT per month. Uh, Now, these groups were asking for 26,000, so much bigger than the 1.5% increase. Uh, Jane, let's uh, take a little bit of an economic perspective to this. Uh, What what, what kind of factors do you think that these uh, ministry officials were weighing when they thought about this? Well, of course, the main um, issue that they were looking at is Taiwan's gloomy economic prospects. And recently, um, I read in the Central News Agency that the government's going to downgrade Taiwan's GDP forecast from three-something percent to, I think, 2.68 percent. So things aren't looking bright. Um, And what I've noticed from talking to economists over the years is that um, they've said to me that employment is almost like Taiwan's doll, (laughs) that they keep wages really low and unemployment is also very low. So I I think from a macroeconomic perspective, if they raise wages too much, it also risks increasing unemployment. Mm. Right, and so they wouldn't have uh, support for those unemployed workers. No, it doesn't have sort of a welfare state like some European countries or Australia or nations like that. Right, and uh, so this is coming, you know, on the run-up to a presidential election, and already uh, wages have kind of been a focus for quite a while in Taiwan. Uh, Ting, uh, what are you hearing uh, from folks that are focusing on this? Um, I think it's actually quite interesting that a protests or um, that labor groups are actually getting a lot more press, in my opinion, about, you know, just the fact that they can ask for a, you know, 30% increase in the minimum wage uh, and have people be behind that, I think is quite interesting. Um, You know, as uh, everybody have observed, I think Taiwan definitely has had a long period of uh, stagnant wages, especially among the the, the younger um, demographic, and so I think there is definitely this push for a more um, politics uh, that's further left afield. Um, so you have the form- uh, formation of, for example, the Social Democratic Party, um, and uh, we recently interviewed the founder, Professor Fan Yun, and there, and she definitely feels that. Um, Politics in Taiwan definitely definitely is taking more of a turn towards these economic issues or towards these sort of livelihood issues. And I think just the fact that they can ask, they can come out and say, we demand a 30% increase in the minimum wage and have people pay attention and not write them off as crazy, um, I think is actually quite interesting. Right. And uh, even yesterday, Shiming Da, who is expected to run in next year's presidential election, uh, he upped the ante even more. He was calling for an increase to 27, more than 27,000 NT per month. So even more than these labor groups were asking for. And uh, just it's 
looks like he's trying to position himself as something of a working class uh, presidential candidate, uh, c- concerned about these working class labor issues. Uh, Jane, do you think that this? Uh, do, 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 do you think that Ting's read on this is right? Is this going to be an issue that's going to have more staying power and more focus in Taiwan? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I think that's one of the major political issues, which is putting pressure on both parties, is the stagnant wages. Is is there one party that is seen as more right on this? I mean, these labor groups uh, were really calling out the KMT. Uh, Shu Mingde was calling out both major parties. Uh, What do you think, in in terms of the general electorate's point of view, which party is more right on this issue? Okay, I would say at the moment it's the DPP, but I would also point out that Sung's campaign is quite nascent, and we need to see what Sung, if Sung has anything to, more to say about this. Yeah, actually, I uh, when you said which party is more right on this, I thought you meant which party was more towards <laughs> the cons- right conservative side. <laughs> Should have amended that. More correct in the eyes of the voters, I should say. All right, so we're going to leave that one behind. And, you know, national wages, uh, that's a difficult enough topic. But this next one, I think it's fair to say uh, many would rather just forget about altogether. The issue of comfort women during World War II. Uh, That's a bit of a euphemism. What we're really talking about here is World War II-era sexual slavery in which women across Asia, including in Taiwan, were forced into sexual servitude for the Japanese Imperial Army. Today, uh, August 14th, actually serves as something of a day of remembrance of the wartime atrocities for civic groups across East Asia— And the Taipei Women's Rescue Foundation is probably the most high-profile of these civic groups in Taiwan, and they're holding uh, their own vigil tonight to mark the occasion. Uh, So, you know, this is a group that's uh, fairly high-profile in Taiwan. We see them uh, have a number of events uh, throughout the year trying to raise awareness about this issue, trying to pressure Japan uh, to make stronger statements of apology uh, on, on this issue. Uh, Jane, uh, what 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 do you uh, do? You think that there's anything different about uh, what's going on in Taiwan as opposed to these other countries? Oh, very different. Um, what I find very interesting is the Taipei Women's Rescue Foundation is the sole non-government organisation in Taiwan that actually advocates for the rights of comfort women. And in contrast, like if you look at South Korea, on Wednesday, an elderly South Korean man set himself on fire during a protest against the treatment of Korean comfort women. And there was sort of 1,000 to 2,000 people in a demonstration outside the Japanese embassy. And I believe they meet there every Wednesday. And, I mean, you just don't see demonstrations of that magnitude in Taiwan. Right. And, and, and what do you think is behind that? I think it's um, a nostalgia for Japan, which is sort of differentiates Taiwan from its neighbours. And um, what I think actually happened was that I think Taiwanese acknowledged the brutality of Japanese colonialism mm-hmm. and the Japanese regime, there's no doubt about that. But when the KMT came to Taiwan in 1949 and earlier in 1947, the 228 incident, the KMT was so much more brutal mm-hmm. that um, there was sort of a nostalgia for the previous regime. And I think that was exacerbated by the fact that the Japanese regime also seemed more modern, that the KMT was sort of ragtag. And so I think that t- that this whole thing about j- nostalgia for Japan has kind of clouded the issue with comfort women and I think people don't really want to face it because um, nostalgia for Japan has sort of become part of Taiwanese identity. Ting, mm. I don't know what you think about that, but yeah, I think um, I definitely agree. And I think more specifically, the comfort woman issue was something that even during the KMT martial law era was sort of a um, look. This is the how terrible the Japanese were, and 
you know, the ROC, the KMT army was able to liberate Taiwan from them. Um, and so I, you know, even growing up, I remember the comfort issue being taught in elementary schools and as a sign of, you know, Japanese atrocities. And so I think now um, it, it's sort of always been this seen as this KMT uh, issue against Japan, right? And so I feel that a lot of people kind of associate supporting um, these uh, efforts, you know, to um, supporting these efforts, I guess, uh, against um, comfort women as being sort of pro-KMT. And so I feel that a lot of people um, do kind of shy away from that because they don't want to be labeled as some, you know, they don't want to sort of go back to that, memory where they're sort of forced taught that these uh you know sort of one-sided history about Japanese atrocities that's uh, that's really interesting that it kind of has taken on that uh, political and identity sort of tone do you, do you see that changing at all or is that a perspective that uh, is going to stick around uh, I do feel that will change um, optim- I, I'm pretty optimistic about future generations of people in Taiwan looking at history um, through more of a um, human rights and moral, uh, scale right so okay comfort, uh, sexual servitude is wrong no matter you know who is behind it right so they will you know definitely say i i do believe that they will come to see comfort women the comfort woman policy under the japanese uh, regime as a, as an atrocity and um, i think there is people that are starting to look into the history of sexual servitude under the kmt martial law era for the kmt army so I do feel that there is a, uh, there's starting to be a trend towards looking at things using more of a, um, shall we say, universal human rights kind of perspective. Right. And that that is kind of a defense that you, you hear from Japan or supporters of Japan occasionally is that there's a bit of a double standard being applied. They're being singled out more than other uh, wartime authorities that uh, carried out similar acts. But I, I, I think the bottom line of what you're saying is is the right way to look at it is that, you know, you really want to have a solid uh, historical perspective on all of the uh, atrocities that were committed and, uh, you know, look at that squarely. Well, the uh, event by the Taipei Women's Rescue Foundation is actually scheduled to take place at Qingcheng Park near Taipei Office of Japan's Interchange Association. Uh, that's sort of their non-official embassy in Taiwan. So that's going to be going on tonight. They also have a number of other kind of uh, events scheduled throughout the year. There's a, a, a documentary that they put together that kind of chronicles the later years of these comfort women's life uh, in Taiwan. So that's available for uh, people who want to learn more about this topic. All right. And uh, before we end the show today, we're going to move to a much, much lighter piece of news, as we generally do. It has been quite a week for a certain pair of mailboxes in Taipei. Many of our listeners are probably already familiar with the crooked images of Xiao Hong and Xiao Liu, that is Little Red and Little Green, a pair of red and green public mailboxes near the intersection of Nanjing East Road and Longjiang Road that were damaged when a sign fell on them during last week's typhoon. Well, they hooked to the left, right into the hearts of many Taiwanese, and after going viral, quickly became a huge draw for folks who wanted to get their picture taken with them. 
Uh, and so very early in this week, we started seeing pictures of long lines of folks that wanted to get their picture taken next to uh, these mailboxes wrapping around the street. In fact, uh, the, these lines of people got to be so large that they began obstructing traffic. And a Zhonghua post office uh, was considering moving them to a, a museum to kind of clear up the area and uh, discourage people from congregating there. There was a huge backlash to that proposal. People said, no, 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 you cannot take away our Xiaohong and Xiaolu. Can't do it. And so they kind of backed away uh, from that. It looks like they're going to stay there for now. And uh, we're, we're already seeing people make commemorative cupcakes, commemorative toys. This thing is really taken off. Is, is this going to be the next yellow duck? Is that what we're seeing emerging right here? Um, I don't know about that, but I, I agree with the Taipei Times editorial, which said this might suggest how bland Taipei's landscape and aesthetics are. <laughs> right? Because if you think about Taipei as a city, when Chiang Kai-shek came here, it was kind of built in a very um, work, you know, work, workabout manner. It was just kind of a lot of squat buildings because it was just a base for retaking the mainland. It wasn't a city in its own right. And since then, it's been very hard to institute urban renewal plans because you need something like 90 plus of residents to agree to it. So... Um, I would agree that um, perhaps the mailboxes represent the fact that people want to see more playfulness in the city in the city's design. They don't like all these sort of bland squat buildings. Uh, what did you take away from this thing? Um, and all I have to say is, uh, whenever there's a line, the lines just get longer, right? Um, I mean, I remember uh, what is it, Mister Donut? Um, you know, basically, I, I, you know, from personal experience, people in Taiwan just like to see what else everybody else is up to. So. Hey, if there's a line, I'm going to stay in it, and I'm going to see what's at the end of the line. So it's popular because it's popular. Uh, exactly. Yes. Yeah, and I, I we we see this at night markets too. There's always going to be like two fried chicken stands, and one is going to have a line wrapping around the block, and the other one will have nobody, and they taste exactly the same. Uh, all right. Well, that's an interesting window into uh, group psychology in Taipei. Uh, Jane, did you did you get a selfie with that? No, I didn't actually. <laughs> I just. Whenever I see something like that, I just detest waiting in queues. <laughs> I'm just re- I've got an impatient personality, so if they're queues, I won't go. <laughs> Ting, uh, when next time you make it to Taiwan, do you think you're going to stop by there? Uh, I, it's not on my itinerary now, but I kind of <laughs> see, you know, maybe in the future they will make all of the mailboxes in Taiwan look exactly like that. So ah, we can slant all of our mailboxes. All right, well, uh, we are going to have to leave behind all that for today. Quick note before we go, uh, of course, our guest, uh, Chai Ye, he is the founder of Katagalan Media. For those of you who do not know, uh, that is a new U.S.-based media group that is covering Taiwan and uh, places around the world uh, with in-depth coverage, uh, largely in English, a little bit in Chinese, but largely in English. So for those of you out there that are looking for a new source of news on Taiwan, uh, got a lot of fresh perspectives uh, being collected there. Uh, that is the place to go, ketagalanmedia.com. Uh, check it out. You're going to like what you see. Meanwhile, you can send us your thoughts on the week's major stories on the Facebook page or on our blog. You'll also be able to find this program online at the ICRT website and on iTunes. If you are listening through iTunes, please take a second to rate and review the show. It lets us know what you're thinking and helps other people discover the program. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Jane Rickards. Jane? Thanks, Keith. And Chay Ting Ye, thank you as well. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. 
Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.